When the fastened seatbelt sign comes on in a passenger jet, usually means one of three things. It means either you're taking off, they finish fueling and you're taking off, you're landing, or you're experiencing turbulence. We expect the seatbelt sign to come on when we're taking off. We expect that. Not a big deal. We don't mind it when the light comes on when we're getting ready to land. We understand that's a thing too. It's the third category that tends to give us trouble. Some of you, you hate to fly, um, and the reason you hate to fly uh, isn't because you're just afraid to fly. It's because at some point along the way, you were on a trip and you had some bad turbulence and it made you uncomfortable and you wondered what was going on and you chose not to ever do that again. Has anybody ever experienced that kind of bad turbulence where you're like, I think I'll drive from now on. Greyhound doesn't sound so bad. Okay, interesting, okay. You ever, you ever had it so bad that you had to hold on to the seat in front of you to stay in your seat or at least to keep your nerves intact? Okay. I've been flying since I was a kid and uh, our first flight um, was a short flight. And if you know the geography at all, you know it's a short flight from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Moncton, New Brunswick. I think it was 20 minutes from, <laughs> from takeoff to touchdown. Uh, it was a super short flight. But we did it because dad had some other vacation plans in mind and he wanted us uh, to get um, some experience flying before he committed to a, a, a bigger trip. So since then, I was, I was talking with Alethea about this and kind of, I, I nerd out on things. And I've flown over 60 times since then. Nearly 30 of those uh, were to visit Alethea's parents. We celebrated an anniversary this week and it's in our 33 years of marriage, her parents have lived in Dallas. Uh, that's right, we were 11. Uh, Houston, uh, Tampa Bay, and Nashville. So now like she's li they're living the closest they've ever lived to us, and they're still a 1,000 miles away. And she has siblings in Texas and Georgia. So we've done a lot of flying to visit family over the 33 years of our marriage. I can't really say that I like air travel. Like, like, I'm not a big fan of the package. Like, I'm not a big fan of herding. You know what I mean, right? Like, you line up to, and, and, and wait to check your bags. And you line up and wait to go through security. And you line up and wait at Starbucks. And you line up and wait in the... That is part of the travel experience. And you line up and wait in the restrooms. Because you lined up and waited at Starbucks. And you line up and wait for your group to be called to board. And you line up, my least favorite part, and wait in the jetway. Why everyone is so bent on getting in the jetway and standing there forever. And then you line up and wait in the aisle while the people in front of you try to figure out how to get that college dorm-sized trunk in the overhead bin, right? And I'm not a huge fan of that part of it. But I don't mind the actual flying. I especially enjoy getting to my destination in a fraction of the time it would take me otherwise you know, to drive it and not have to spend precious vacation time sitting in a car in construction traffic in the middle of who knows where, right? So I'm not here to complain about my experience with travel. In fact, we flew just last month. Um, we went to Tennessee to visit with Alethea's mom and dad, and her sister came over from Georgia, and her brother came up from Texas. We had a late Thanksgiving with them. We were about halfway through our flight from Baltimore to Nashville when the fasten seatbelt sign came on, and we started to experience a little bit of turbulence. Nothing major. They're still serving drinks. But within a few minutes, it got a little worse, and it was a challenge to get that little shot glass of soda to your mouth without spilling it on yourself, you know? And uh, they, they stopped the drink service, and the flight attendants eventually made their way through the cabin to collect trash, but they never finished the drink service. And the captain came on to let us know uh, it was going to be a bumpy ride for a while, 
And then as we approached Nashville, he came on again to tell us that there was some stormy weather. I'm like, what have we been in? You know, but we've been above the storm, I understand. So now we're coming into some stormy weather in Nashville, and we could expect a rough approach and landing. And he wasn't kidding. Uh, once we picked up our luggage and headed out to the curb where Alethea's sister was, was meeting us, we realized how severe the storm was. So the landing was rough. I remember one of our trips to Texas years ago when the kids were, were pretty young, we were in some pretty good turbulence, and we were wondering how the kids were handling it. And we look over at Erin, she might have been three or four, and she's just sitting there grinning, looking out the window into the night sky, and she's like, this is fun. I like all the hills. You know, and I'm like, well, good, I'm glad you do, you know. Um, yeah, so when the fastest seatbelt sign comes on, it means one of, one of three things. You're either taking off landing or suddenly it's going to get a little rough and you shouldn't be up walking around and this flight isn't going to be quite as smooth as you'd hoped it would be. And the problem with sitting in a jet in that tube that's enclosed with that really serious lock on the door flying through the sky at ridiculous speeds, like think about, don't think about it. And <laughs> the problem is when the fastest seatbelt sign comes on, is you don't know what's going to happen. That's, that's my problem. Like you just got settled in and everything's great and you're enjoying your soda and you've memorized the Sky Mall catalog, remember those? And uh, you know where all the emergency exits are, you got that down and you just gotten into that book that you want to read and then suddenly, you know, ding! And the chime goes off and there's turbulence. And the fasten seatbelt sign comes on. And you don't know, is there going to be a little bit of turbulence? Is it going to be like a medium turbulence? Or is it going to be like hold on to your seat kind of turbulence? Spent some time on the internet the other day doing a little research. And because I got to wondering, how does the captain know? Like, how does this work? How does he know when to turn the fasten seatbelt sign on? So I got looking around. I found some stuff from the American Airlines operations manual. This is the kind of stuff I read for fun. And before I read what I found, let me, I'll read what one pilot said, summarizing this in his own words. He said, as far as when do we turn the fasten seatbelt sign on, it goes like this. If there's a turbulence report from another pilot, we turn it on. If the weather radar indicates turbulence, we turn it on. If the meteorological forecast indicates turbulence, we turn it on. If there are certain cloud formations, we turn it on. If the wind shifts, we turn it on. If we get a gut feeling, we turn it on. And if my head hits the ceiling of the cockpit, we turn it on. So I'm like, that's helpful. So here's what I discovered in my research. And I never knew this. I never picked up on this in all my times flying. If it's light turbulence, if it's light turbulence, it's the flight attendant who picks up the microphone and says, the captain's turned on the fasten seatbelt sign because we might be experiencing some turbulence. If it's moderate to heavy turbulence, someone in the cockpit gets on and says, you know, this is, this is, this is turbulence, you know, and uh, you know what I'm talking about. We've got some bumpy road ahead, so buckle up and stay in your seat, which explains why we heard from the captain so often that, in that flight from Baltimore to Nashville a few weeks ago. And I read that, and I thought, now I know what to expect. That is helpful information. If, a voice, if it's a voice from the cockpit, I know it's going to be medium to heavy. It's a flight attendant who just served me my Dr. Pepper. Not a big deal. It's going to be light turbulence. You can read through it. The other thing um, I discovered, one of the things I read in this operations manual, <laughs> this cracked me up. The pilot, this is a quote, the pilot should not fly the plane into a thunderstorm. And I thought, I'm glad that wrote that down. Because <laughs> I assumed we would know that. But this went on to explain why you shouldn't fly the jet into a thunderstorm. And then it says, if you cannot avoid penetrating the thunderstorm before entering the storm, tighten your seatbelt. So the stuff pilots know that we don't know. Here's where I want to go this morning. 
the fastened seatbelt sign in our lives has a way of coming on over and over again. When you can look out the window and see the storm clouds and without warning out of the clear blue sky. It's like suddenly there's turbulence and you don't know, we never know how long it's going to last. Our eyes are just glued to the sign. You know, I hope he turns it off. I hope he turns it off. When's he going to turn it off? I hope, oh, another bump. I hope he turns it off. The fasten seatbelt thing has a way of popping up in our lives. And the turbulence comes from so many different places. And the interesting thing is, and we tend to downplay this, but one of the things I find so interesting about the Bible is that so much of it was written from a place of uncertainty. So many of the men and women who fill the pages of Scripture were not strangers to the kind of uncertainty and turbulence that we experience personally and in our households and in community life and even on a larger scale. So much of the Bible was written from and takes place in a context of uncertainty. It's about stress. It's about death. It's about threats of death. It's about the enemy. It's about famine and uprising. This, this whole collection of writings that we call the Bible is full of stories about that kind of stuff. And from a context much like we live in today, and in most cases even worse. All that to say that as we deal with the uncertainty that we face personally in our lives, as our lives are challenged relationally, um, in our marriages, in our homes, at work, with financial stuff, economy stuff, health stuff, whenever we deal with uncertainty as a church, uh, whenever we deal with uncertainty as a nation, uh, like with a struggling economy or the ever-present threat of things like terrorism or ruthless dictators around the world, we have in the scripture, in this ancient text, we know God's word about what to do when the fastened seatbelt sign comes on. And if that wasn't enough, we got a couple thousand years of history of men and women who put their faith in Christ, who survived all sorts of stuff, came out on the other side with peace and sanity and health and faith, who understand that when Jesus said, they, they understand from firsthand experience what Jesus meant when he invited us into a rich and meaningful life, to live life to the full. So if you're here today and you're not really a, a religious person or you're not a Christian, the truth is the uncertainty of the times we live in has impacted you too, right? Like this isn't a Christian problem, this is a human problem. And not only that, but, but maybe you're, you're, you're facing uncertainty as an individual in your finances and your family or your marriage and your health or whatever the deal might be. So today as we look at what God has to say, I, I want you to look at it and then I want you to listen because even though you may not buy into all of this, the whole package, uh, even though maybe you're not, a, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian today, even though maybe you're still trying to, you're wrestling with things like, you know, creation and evolution. What about that? And the Noah's Ark thing, really? And Jonah and the whale? And all those are legitimate questions that we would an love to answer sometime, best we know how. They're complicated. But maybe you're just at a point where you're just going to like, 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 begin to embrace on some level what we're going to talk about today. Here's what I want us all to think about as we open God's Word and ask this question. What do we do? when the fasten seatbelt sign comes on? Like, what do we do? How do we thrive in times of uncertainty? And here's what I want us to think about. Like, if what I'm going to talk about today, if where I land today in a few minutes isn't the answer, 
then what are you going to do? What are your options? Let me try to answer that in 20 seconds. Because basically, your options are to worry. Your options are to be driven by fear. Your options are to take the edge off with whatever takes the edge off for you. But basically, you have a lot to worry about because essentially you face a future where so much is out of control. Oh, oh, and I'm not suggesting to you that my answer is God is in control because those of you who know me know that that's one of my big pet peeves and I got a few of them. That's a, and it's, but here's the thing, like God is in control is theologically complicated. And to, to reduce the turbulence in your life to a simple, well, don't worry about it, God's in control, is first of all incredibly insensitive and I would argue theologically shallow because it, 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 it places our hope in an idea that doesn't really have legs to stand on. So be cautious about that. But that's really not my point today. Here's something you've already seen and found to be true because you've already experienced this. That if, if we don't do what the Scripture teaches us to do about uncertainty, if we don't approach the turbulent times and uncertainty in our lives the way Jesus and his early followers teach us to approach them, um, eventually, maybe things like, for example, what began as a national problem, like it's something you only knew about because you saw it on the news, right? It wasn't really touching down in your life. But if we don't deal with it the way that Jesus taught us to deal with uncertainty, eventually these things become a personal problem. Because your fear and your worry begins to consume you like emotionally and nobody's going to get your undivided attention because you're kind of obsessed in this other thing and you'll be consumed with the frustrations and the fears and the anxieties that come along with every kind of uncertainty. So if you're a person who doesn't know where to go, what to do, how to deal with uncertainty other than just handling it on your own and figure it out somehow, that, that will impact you. It'll impact you relationally. It'll impact you financially. Uh, it, all I want to do for the rest of our time here this morning, for just the next few minutes, is, is I just would ask that we listen. Because if you've ever come to the place where you've entertained the thought that maybe there is a God and possibly Jesus Christ is his son and perhaps Jesus is who he claimed to be and perhaps Jesus claimed that he is the only way to relationship with the heavenly father is true. Perhaps that claim is true. I want you to know that that goes way beyond simply heaven when you die. In the scripture, particularly in the New Testament, we have the most unbelievable practical advice and teaching and examples as it pertains to dealing with life's uncertainties. So for the next few weeks, I want to give you four words that come from Scripture, four things that we can do when we face uncertainty, uh, four things to do when the seatbelt sign comes on and you don't know what the future holds and you know, only, the only thing you know is it's probably not going to be everything you'd hope for. So I hope you'll hang with me and, and, and just a word of warning, don't get too far ahead of, of me uh, in this uh, because uh, your tendency might be like, oh yeah, but what about? You know, easy for you to say, you don't have know my situation, or that's such a churchy response, that's exactly what I would expect a pastor to say. Let me just say, before you jump to those conclusions, I would ask for just a little bit of grace and a little time, because I'm, I'm not sure that any of these next four-ish sermons will stand alone, all right? So let's get to the end of this short series, and maybe around the end of January, and see where we land. Is that fair? Okay. First word I want to give, that, I had that disclaimer because of this very first word I'm going to give you. The first word I want to give you is, is one that you would probably guess anyway, and it's one that immediately comes to mind in times of, of uncertainty, and the word is pray. And you're like, I had to come to church for that? I mean, I, as soon as I turn my TV on, I start praying. 
As soon as I see what the stock market did, I think about never retiring and I start praying. As soon as this whole deal of my family blew up in my face, I start praying. You know, don't tell me to pray. I've already prayed. It hasn't helped a bit, but I pray. I try to pray. I'm not even sure anybody's listening, but what do you mean pray? So let's just, let's just listen, listen, listen. Because today we're going to go below the surface of what we talk about as we, when we talk about prayer. I want to try to explain a little bit about a kind of a complicated passage that holds an incredible truth when it comes to dealing with uncertainty. And it's a pretty familiar passage. Uh, I've taught from it several times, but I would just ask that we press pause on our preconceived ideas and let the Holy Spirit speak fresh truth to us this morning. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, I want you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. And while you're finding it, let me give a little bit of context. This is written by Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is like uh, most people who wrote the Scripture. He wrote during times of great uncertainty on every level. Like his uncertainty like was this. First of all, he was a Jewish man who against all odds eventually came to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Savior. And he came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah after Jesus had already left this earth. And then he believed that God had called him to go all over the known world and tell people that Jesus was the Messiah and not just Jewish people, but all people. And so he went on this mission to go tell people about Jesus, and through this, he gets arrested. And they were going to take him to Rome because he was also a Roman citizen, and they're going to try him for causing a disturbance in the Roman provinces. So along the way, there's this shipwreck in Malta, and a shipwreck like, would be bad today. I don't know if you've ever experienced a shipwreck or been on a ship that's going down. I haven't, but I can imagine how bad that would be. Uh, and, and they did, like, like, think about this. Think about Paul's day and what a ship, well, first of all, what a ship looks like, okay? A ship. They had a shipwreck. Like, they didn't even have Band-Aids, okay? So you think they had, there was no rescue plan, okay? There's a shipwreck, and everything's a mess, and everybody's a mess, and people are dying and have died and are bleeding. And the book of Acts tells about the shipwreck, and it's, it's, it's significant. And, like, he could have tried to jump off uh, the, into the water and swim away, but he stays with these Roman soldiers. Perhaps he was chained to them. We don't know. They were escorting him. But he actually saves their lives, and he finally gets to Rome, and he's put in a Roman prison, and now he's awaiting trial. So this guy wasn't, he wasn't taking a writing, he wasn't on a writing retreat, he wasn't taking a sabbatical, he wasn't taking a study break, he wasn't writing from the beach somewhere, well he was, but it wasn't like, he'd been to the beach, but it wasn't what we thought. So this isn't like a country club philosopher saying, you know, I got some ideas. This is a guy in a Roman prison, oh, and, and just to make matters worse context, do you remember who the emperor of Rome was during Paul's imprisonment? Do you remember? Starts with an N. Nero, right. Ever heard of Nero? Nice guy. He loved Christians. They were very entertaining to him. He built arenas so he could persecute Christians. and he could, it, was explore, it was sport. He launched a national persecution to rid the world of Christians. And I uh, remember he fed them the lions and burned them at the stake and did all kinds of atrocious experiments. And he was a lunatic and he hated Christians. So now you're the Apostle Paul, you've been shipwrecked, now you're in prison in Rome waiting trial, and Nero is the emperor. That's where this letter comes from. And the reason I tell you all that is when you look at this letter and read what Paul has to say, the temptation is to close your Bible and say, well, I'm just so sure. This nice, nice warm fuzzies, Paul, great. Just visit my world and say that. Visit my life and say that. Take a look at my life, take a look at my marriage, take a look at my kids, my job, my finances and say that. Paul, you're so unrealistic. That's why I said a while ago that we have to be careful not to dismiss what Scripture says about uncertainty because those who wrote about it faced uncertainty like most of us never will. In this passage, 
is the secret. If we can get a hold of it, as it deals with prayer, it'll take us a long way down the road to finding peace in the midst of uncertainty. Let's read some verses. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to start at verse 4, I think. Rejoice in the Lord always. To which we're like, you've got to be kidding. You mean on Sunday mornings? Yes, most Sunday mornings I can get it together enough to rejoice in the Lord, especially if they play my favorite songs. But Paul's like, no, I'm not kidding. In fact, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. In other words, he's like, look, you're so worried about me, like, and you're, you're worried about what's going to happen, you know, what's going to happen to Paul, what's going to happen to the church, what's going to happen to this thing. Look, church, rejoice. Find joy in this. And we're like, well, how do you, how do you, how do you find joy in a family that, look, that's got this deal going on, in finances that look like this, and this health diagnosis, and this loss, and, and an economy and political landscape that looks like ours does. And Paul is like, like, okay, I guess you, you don't get it. You're getting pulled down into the kind of thinking of everybody around you. Everybody around you thinks that everything is spinning out of control. What's going to happen? There is no purpose. And Paul would say to us, have you forgotten the Lord is near? Like God hasn't gone anywhere. You can have joy in the midst of your chaos because God is near. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. That's another sermon we don't have time for today, but essentially he says, in the midst of uncertainty, don't sacrifice your character. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of pressure, in the midst of job stress, in the midst of your health situation, in the midst of all of that, don't lose your character. Like, don't start doing the wrong thing in order to correct something that you can't correct anyway. Be the person God has called you to be. And we read that and we're like, how am I supposed to be a person of character in my circumstances, in these circumstances? How am I supposed to be joyful in these circumstances? And he goes on, verse 6, here's how. Do not be anxious about anything. And this is, again, one of those statements that Paul makes where it's just like, oh, okay, good, check that one off. Let's, let's sit here for a second. Because you want to close your Bible and like, Paul doesn't get it. Paul doesn't know what's going on in my life. Paul doesn't know the kind of stuff I'm dealing with. The word anxious here means to be distracted by the fear of the future. That's what it means to be anxious in this context. I got all this stuff going around me, going on around me. I'm so afraid about what's going to happen. I'm so afraid of what might be. I'm so afraid about what could be that I'm distracted by the fear, my fear of the future, and it begins to impact like so much of my life and trickles down into my relationships and my thinking about everything, and I'm like so anxious. And it's like Paul's saying, listen, I, I don't want you to be distracted. I don't want you to be distracted by fear of the future. I don't want you to be distracted by anything. And again, that's where I'm tempted to shut my Bible because like this is so insensitive. Like the writer didn't know what's going on in my life. How can you face this kind of uncertainty and not be anxious? Is that really possible? And the Apostle Paul, perhaps chained wrist to wrist to Roman guards, says, yeah, I can tell you all about that. Let me tell you what you have to do. First of all, you have to pray. To which we're like, prayed, already prayed, did that, didn't do any good. Tried that, what else you got, Paul? So let's just pause here and set aside some of our ideas about prayer, maybe. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, that is, in all those things that you are tempted to be anxious about, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. What he doesn't say 
is say a prayer. What he doesn't say is, well, just, you know, tell God what's going on and everything's going to be all right. It'll all be good. Just pray a prayer. Get the words right. Get it in the right order. Activate the prayer chain. Call some prayer warriors. Get all the right words in there. That's not Paul's idea of prayer at all. What Paul is doing with his choice of words and grammatically is he's slowing the reader down. He says, I don't want you to be anxious about anything, so let me tell you how to deal with what you're feeling about what's going on around you. Here it is. We're going to slow it down. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, and then here it is. Don't go by this too fast. Present your requests to God. And he uses very interesting language and very interesting sentence structure here, and here's what he means. It means unveil the mystery of your desires to God. The English translators have translated this in different ways. Yours might say, let your request be made known to God. A difficult passage to translate into English words. He's saying, stop first of all, and through prayer and petition, through thanksgiving, in other words, this isn't like a 30-second deal that you just got to do 17 times a day and check the thing off and you get the, you know, you get the magic words right. This isn't like on the way home from the doctor, Lord, heal me. This isn't one of those kinds of prayers. It's a slow down, be alone with God, in a posture of prayer, grapple with God, and in that experience, unveil, that is to unwrap the mystery of what you're longing for and truly desire and do that with God. So here's what I'm getting at, and I know this, is, this might feel kind of weird. Any area of your life where there's uncertainty, it doesn't matter the category. Wherever there's uncertainty, there is always fear. And you're like, well, I'm not afraid, I'm just, I'm just worried. No, no, wait, I'm in church. I'm not worried, I'm just really concerned. <laughs> you're scared, okay? Whenever there's a sense of uncertainty, there's always a sense of fear, Let me put it this way. We say or we think things, the voice in our head is saying, the reason I don't want such and such to happen is because I'm afraid that, and then we fill in the blank. Right? The reason I'm worried about, I don't know, my job is I'm afraid that, fill in the blank. The reason I'm anxious about my health situation is that I'm afraid that, fill in the blank. Wherever there is uncertainty, there is always fear, and don't miss this, in that fear, so pay attention to the fear. In the fear, which we hate and would prefer not to come face to face with, we resist that it's even there. We want to deny it. But in that fear resides a desire, a longing that many of us, probably most of us, have no idea is even there because we haven't spent enough time in that place. We haven't been honest enough, even with ourselves. So what I think the Apostle Paul is alluding to, and I think because of what follows, is this, that in the midst of uncertainty, we got to get past praying, God, I pray that you take care of this. I pray I get a job. I pray I'd get that promotion. God, I pray the test comes back negative. I pray that somehow the bill collectors will lose my phone number. I pray that you would change him, change her, so our marriage can be better, so our friendship can survive. I pray that you just change all these things. And he says, you've got to get beyond all these circumstantial prayers and we need to grapple with and unveil and unwrap the thing that you truly desire. That is the request to be made known to God. That is, we've got to discover 
as we identify what is it that I'm afraid of, somewhere packed in that fear is a desire or a longing. And here's what I know. If we can ever get to that, if we can ever get to that, and if we can ever hand that off to our Heavenly Father, you will hear His Spirit whisper to you, I can handle that. I will take care of that. Place into my hands that which only my hands are capable of handling. And it's not simply your job, and it's not simply your health situation, it's not simply your teenager or your adult child or your marriage or your church. There's something else. Like There's something else that you desire. There's something else that's driving this fear. Unwrap that. Spend enough time wrestling with God to unwrap that and unveil the mystery of that. And once you discover it, hand it to your heavenly Father, and you will have an opportunity then in time to walk away with a quiet sense of confidence. It's like, So like, what is it that we're afraid of? What is it you're afraid of? What's behind that? What's in there? Would you spend some time alone with God and give him your undivided attention long enough to begin to unpack what it is that you're asking? Unpack your fear and find out what is it that you're truly desiring and then would you place that in his capable hands? When you do you will experience peace. And you can live through uncertain times and you will not be anxious. That is, you will not be controlled by the fear of the unknown. Here's what Paul says. Here's the promise. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, that is, the peace that comes from God, not the kind of peace the world gives, Remember Jesus, before he left this earth, he said to his disciples, my, I'm, my peace, I'm leaving it with you. And it's not the kind of peace the world gives. The kind of peace the world gives is like, as long as things are good, I have peace. As long as I have a wrinkle-free life, I have peace. But as soon as something happens in my life, as soon as the fasten seatbelt sign comes on, my peace is gone. And Jesus is saying to us, I'm giving you a different kind of peace. It's a peace of God. It's a peace that comes from God. It's not peace of good circumstances. It's not the peace of a good economy. It's not peace of a full bank account. It's not the peace of a clean bill of health. It's the peace from God. It's a peace that goes beyond human comprehension. I love this phrase. He says, the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Do you know what that means? It means... It doesn't make any sense to us. You're like, what do you mean, peace? Did something happen I don't know about? No, no, things are as crazy as they've ever been. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. This is the kind of peace that we're talking about. This wording in verse 7 means that there is no way to explain this kind of peace. Because like our version of peace is linked to to circumstances but the peace of god catch this is tied into the character and presence of god so you unpack your fears you place in god's capable hands that which only he can, is capable of handling and i'm telling you at the end of the of that that, that experience of that of that process you will have peace that surpasses all human understanding Look what this peace does, verse 7. This peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
you know what your heart is in, the, in these kinds of contexts in the Bible? It's your emotions. The word emotion doesn't appeal any, appear anywhere in, uh, at least in this version of the Bible, in any, that English translation that we, like the NIV, but your heart is your emotion. So here's the promise. If you'll get past this quick 30-second prayer thing, this transactional kind of approach to prayer, Lord, help me, give me, change him, fix her, bless me, bless him, bless everybody, blah, blah, blah. If we get past that, to spend enough time alone with our Heavenly Father in prayer and petition with thanksgiving, and if we will unpack our fears and uncover what it is that we truly desire, and if we'll place that in his hands, then he gives us peace. And this peace will stand guard over your emotions. It'll stand guard over your thoughts. And nobody will understand it because it goes way beyond human understanding. Do you know why I believe this? I'm going to be honest. It's not simply because it's in the Bible, although that is pretty much enough for me. But been reinforced in my life. I believe it because I learned early, and part of it for me was growing up in a pastor's home, watching people go through all sorts of trying times, and through watching godly people hand their really significant concerns over to their Heavenly Father. And I observed, not that I would have articulated it this way at the time, but I saw that there is a peace, listen, there's a peace that precedes a change of circumstances. Like there, there, there exists a peace that precedes anything being peaceful. There's a peace that is available for those who are willing to invest the time and energy in the presence of God and say, God, I've finally figured out what I'm afraid of. I'm finally, I finally figured out what I'm worried about, what I'm really, really worried about, like what's below the surface. I've finally figured out what it is I truly desire. It's not just about the job. It's not just about my finances. It's not just about the situation with my teenager. It's not just about the test results or the prognosis. I've discovered that there's actually way more to it than that, and I'm giving it to you. And God would say, in exchange, I give you my peace. I grew up seeing that. And I saw early on the importance of prayer in this process. Like so many influential people in my life as a kid and as a teenager modeled for me the importance of spending time with with God in, uh, in this way, at this level. And because of that, and following Paul's instructions, like we, they would unload their burdens and their fears. And I grew up seeing that and the importance of spending that kind of time with God until you've unloaded your burdens to the point that you can walk away with peace. And you can inter- then you can introduce peace into your home, into your relationships, even though, listen, nothing around you has changed. I've seen it in the lives of so many people over the years. I've seen it in the lives of people who've lost loved ones, like suddenly and tragically, and after a lengthy illness. I've seen it in the lives of people who've received some devastating news from their doctors. I've seen it in people whose careers were just derailed because their company downsized or merged or went out of business, right? I've seen it in people whose 
kids have just abandoned everything they've been taught for years, and I've spent time with people who in the midst of their uncertainty just wanted me to pray with them. And what set them apart from so many others is that when they didn't want me to pray just for the presenting issue, like they didn't just want me to pray for healing, they didn't want me to just pray for an immediate answer to the present crisis, they just wanted to pray, Father, I want to see this the way you see it, because I need your peace in the middle of my uncertainty. And people would say, well, you seem to be handling that well. And their response is, it's a piece of God. I, don't, I can't explain it. In the midst of unbelievable uncertainty, they made it a practice to whenever they needed to, to peel off, to get alone, to spend time with God. because it's not, and, and, and then eventually, right, to experience, to regain maybe that which God had promised, peace, the kind of peace that is not circumstantial. And I'm telling you, I know it's real because I've experienced it with some of you. So this is my desire for us, for you. That during times of personal crisis and uncertainty, that we could get past, oh God, help us change this, fix that. Here's my to-do list. And that we'd take the time and find the courage to get alone with our Heavenly Father and unwrap whatever it is that we're mad about or upset about, or uncertain about, to stay there long enough to discover, to reveal the desire of our heart that is, is hidden somewhere in there, in that fear. And once we identify that thing that we truly desire, to place it in the hands of God, who is capable of carrying it, and to know what it is to walk away with His peace. Today, as we wrap this up, I want to sort of kickstart this process maybe for us a little bit. Because for some of us right now, we need this. For others, we need to just file this away for another day. In a minute, we're going to play some music. I want to lead you in a little mental and spiritual exercise to get you thinking along these lines. I'm going to read, then I'm going to read you something that Jesus said, and then we're going to take a few minutes in prayer to pray silently right where you are. You can go to the prayer space in the back of the room if you'd like to. You can pray by yourself there. You can bring someone to pray with you. Uh, you can reach out to someone near you. You can, uh, you can walk across the room to have someone pray with you. Here's where I'd like to focus our prayers for the next few minutes. Listen carefully. This is about placing into God's hands what only God is capable of handling. So here's the question. What is your greatest concern right now? Like, what is the thing that you're anxious about? Like, emotionally, you just find yourself, you just keep going there. And then secondly, the follow-up is, what are you afraid will happen if it comes true? Like, what, what are you afraid will happen? Like, what are you afraid will happen if you fill in the blank? Somewhere in that fear is what we really want. Somewhere in that fear, if we're honest, we'll see it, we'll discover what it is that we truly desire. So I want to challenge you to kind of engage in that process, to land at this place where we can pray, Lord, if, if that happens, if this relationship ends, if my teenager goes there, if my finances don't change, if this test comes back, comes back positive, whatever the circumstances are, I'm afraid that, and you fill in the blank, tell him what you're afraid of specifically. Here's the thing I want you to think about. That there in that fear is the request you must make known to God. Somewhere in that fear is the request that He wants you to unpack and hand to Him.
And if we do, you'll hear him whisper into your heart, I will carry that for you. I'm going to leave you with this, and we're going to sit in prayer for a few minutes before we join together to sing. These are Jesus' own words in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 11. In verse 28, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.